We turn in our Bibles then to Hebrews in chapter 2 and considering the first four verses of this chapter and we're thinking this evening of the danger of drifting from the gospel. In April 2022, you may recall five miles off the coast of Northern Ireland, a P&O ferry called the European Causeway drifted for two hours on a Tuesday afternoon. I don't think anyone was on that ferry, but you probably remember it being on the news. It had lost power and inexperienced staff were unable to restart its engines. Passengers, up to 410 of them, had to endure blackouts before lifeboats and tugboats emerged to rescue them. Terrifying experience. The head of P&O rightly was called to resign because of his employment policy. Drifting in such circumstances is frightening and dangerous. And much more serious for us is drifting from the gospel. And that is the subject of this paragraph in Hebrews chapter 2. Drifting from the gospel. Verse 1, lest we drift away from it. Now this paragraph might be startling to us after thinking this morning of the heavy doctrinal passage in chapter 1. And it indicates that a sermon must include application. A sermon without application is not a sermon but a lecture. And one reason why the book of Hebrews is considered a sermon rather than a letter is the constant application that we find throughout this book. The writer breaks off from arguing a theological point that's nuanced, that's detailed, that is deep to make application to the readers. We find this in verses 1 to 4 of this chapter We'll find it again in chapter 3, verse 7. He's been arguing for the supremacy of Jesus over Moses there. And he breaks off to make solemn and detailed application to the people. And so the book of Hebrews is called in chapter 13, a word of exhortation fitting for the style that the author uses. And for some of us, such interruptions to the flow of an argument is frustrating. We will see next week that verse 5 of chapter 2, God willing, carries on from where we left off in verse 14 of chapter 1. And you with your logical mind and rational thinking might prefer to have a continued argument as we find in the book of Romans in chapters 1 to 11. You're rational, you're a logical thinker, Application interrupts your train of thought and irritates you. Or you may be frustrated because you're only interested in theology. You love chapter 1, the depths of verses 1 to 4, the way that the writer is able to use the Psalms in verses 5 to 14. All of this fascinates you, grips you, interests you. But this practical stuff of 1 verse 4 of chapter 2, you have little time for or interest in. Your bookshelves perhaps are filled with weighty theological tomes, but there are few practical works in your home. 
And you need to hear this passage. We need to listen to and observe the approach of this writer. Even in the book of Romans, after the first 11 weighty doctrinal chapters, comes the five chapters of application at the end. Both books, Romans and Hebrews, are stating that we cannot be only interested in doctrine. We must go on to ask the questions after we've wrestled with the doctrine and understood the depths of the teaching. Now what? So what? If we're only interested in doctrine, I'm guessing that you're weak in loving your spouse and careless in ruling your children. Yes, we want clear understanding of truth, but that truth is meant to impact our life. And this is a model not just for preachers, but for listeners. Isn't the approach of this writer to have doctrine, deep doctrine, weighty doctrine that in this life will probably never plumb the depths off in chapter 1. But then he adds this striking, gripping application to the doctrine. Isn't this in line with the aim of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, that is, God breathed that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But perhaps application annoys another group. It's those who resent authority. They are people who are bought into this strand of our contemporary culture of anti-authoritarianism. And so they sit in churches and in pews and and they fume. Who is this preacher to tell me what to do? They believe that sermons should be light on application and that the congregation should go home and work out the application for themselves. And that is no new position within the church. Calvin wrestled with this in his time and his approach was to give the application, he argued, because if it's left to the congregation, they'll never do it. But what is the application that the writer makes of his theological argument in chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to prophets and to angels? Composing Application is the hard part of any sermon or of your daily devotions. We have help in interpreting the text with lexicons and dictionaries and commentaries and study Bibles. But we have little help in how to apply the text into our lives. Making it relevant, making it fresh, making it incisive week by week to the same congregation or in our personal devotions to the same person ourselves is challenging for any preacher, for any Christian. And so, some just don't bother. As we read Chronicles, as we read Ezekiel, and the visions and the names, and we wrestle with how Does this relate to me and my family and my pressures and my needs? Sometimes we just find that process far too 
difficult. So it is a challenge. It is a question. How do we apply chapter 1? Jesus is superior to prophets. Jesus is superior to angels. Well, so what? What does that mean for us? Now what? What application are we to, to receive from that in our lives, in our thinking, in the way we live? Well, you and I, we might apply that chapter as we try to do this morning towards the end of the sermon by acknowledging a fresh commitment to, to worship God alone. Not to have other gods within our lives. Not, not to be distracted by, by other great things that surround us and press for our attention. But give God the worship that he deserves. We might from this first chapter find comfort in the role of angels in our lives. And maybe ponder if we have guardian angels. We might even get into debates over how the world will end. Will it be a, a brand new creation or will it be a, a rejuvenated creation as the, 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 the quotations from Psalm 102 impinge upon? And how should this impact the policies being made at COP27 or our own commitment to recycling in our backyards? These are all interesting and useful applications. But this writer brings out a different application, perhaps a more serious and significant application from the superiority of Jesus to prophets and to angels in these famous words in Hebrews. It's the application of the danger of drifting from this gospel that has been spoken by Jesus. The one who is greater than the prophets. The one who is greater than the angels. He has spoken the gospel. And there's the danger of us drifting from that supreme and glorious message. It's a familiar subject to us, isn't it? It's one that resonates with us. Meets us in our heart and life. We're familiar with drifting from the gospel. None of us would deny that we have drifted from the gospel. Or maybe even now where we are in our lives. Not the Christians that we once were. Or we should be. We have been more committed. More interested. Than we are now. Our hearts have been blown off course. We have drifted from commitment to the gospel. Maybe we look beyond ourselves to others and we, we see others known to us within our families or within our congregation who would once have been here with us, not only in morning worship but in evening worship as well, and now you never see them. They're drifting from the gospel. Of Jesus. So while we may be frustrated that the level of doctrinal data and input is lowered in this paragraph and in this sermon, yet this is an issue that we're being forced to consider. And it's one of the merits of the Lectio Continuo method of preaching, isn't it? 
that you just preach the next paragraph that's in front of you. There's the great story of Calvin who got kicked out of Geneva for a while and he left. And when he returned to Geneva, invited by the council who'd had a change of heart, he started preaching at the very next verse that he'd left off from years before. And in that method, the merit of it is that we are forced to consider a paragraph like this. And perhaps the the, the really gripping thing for us tonight is this, that while we've heard this verse, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, preached to sinners, it's been written here to professing Christians, to people within the church like, like you and I. And the writer is warning about the danger of drifting from the gospel. Let's think about the format of drifting from the gospel that he sets out here. Let's think of the folly of drifting from the gospel. Let's think thirdly of the fearfulness of drifting from the gospel. Think of the format of drifting from the gospel. The main problem, as we've been saying, facing his readers is the temptation to move away from the gospel back to Judaism. So the writer who evidently had this problem in mind in chapter 1, he now comes to use that, the weight of that argument, all the theology that he's built up, all those quotations that he's cited to dissuade the readers from their course. In the presence of the supremacy of Jesus, he now brings it all to bear on the hearts and minds of his reader. And he uses a metaphor for departing from the gospel, the action that they are in danger of continuing and completing in the first verse, lest we drift away from it. And the word drift is a rich word with varied uses of the term in the first century and and, and before. Plato, for example, uses it of something slipping from memory, drifting, and, and, and we know about that. Plutarch uses it of a ring slipping from a finger. Aristotle uses it of a crumb slipping down the wrong way in our throat, causing us to choke and to cough. John Chrysostom notes in in his sermon on this book of Hebrews that the word is used in Proverbs 3 verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Do not drift Lose sight of these. And that's the idea here. And perhaps that verse is in mind in this command here. But most commonly and the best use of the word, it was of a ship being carried by strong currents. And translation reflects that. Past its landing place and drifting on downstream. F.F. Bruce explains the word in peril of being carried downstream past a fixed landing place and so failing to gain its security. And so the readers were in danger of drifting past the gospel and not anchoring themselves to it. But how does such spiritual drifting happen. 
And it's a really striking and sobering point that's made in this paragraph, isn't it? In verse number three, it's by neglecting the gospel. It's not by open rejection and renunciation of the gospel. It's not by standing up in the marketplace with reasoned arguments against the gospel, but by slowly and unconsciously neglecting the gospel. R.C.H. Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, says, not rejecting it, just letting it lie. Richard Brooks expands on, on this idea. He says, the senses of making light of it, putting it to one side, turning away from it, outgrowing it, walking out on it, Abandoning it. Perhaps it's evidenced by not attending church services or not listening during the services. Perhaps it's evidenced by stopping a regular reading of scripture in private devotions. By failing to meditate on the truths and applying them in our lives. By occupying ourselves with other things so no time in our lives or room in our minds is left for the gospel. The image of the ship is a useful one. Imagine soldiers, sailors, parting on deck or preoccupied with scrubbing the hold and they just drift past the security of the harbour. There are numerous numerous examples of neglect in our lives. Something that we've always meant to do and never get round to doing it sometimes ends in catastrophe. We meant to fix that leak in our roof. Started with a drip and, and then to a stream. We never got round to doing it until the roof fell in. We heard a rattle in the car. Meant to take it to the garage. But we kept driving it and then... One day, it just would not go. That tear in your jacket, you always meant to fix, and now it's a big hole so that you can never put the jacket on. There are many challenges in the Christian life, aren't there? Some are from the outside. The devil's assaults, worldly allurements, temptations to compromise, unhelpful company challenge us. In our Christian life, some come from within us. An unbelieving heart, a careless walk, a lukewarm devotion. And then there is just drifting. Neglecting. Going along without conviction, without commitment, without involvement. The gospel has no real grip on our lives. Like an overgrown garden or a pile of clothes to be ironed. We see what has to be done. But we neglect that duty daily. The format of drifting from the gospel. We neglect that gospel. Secondly, The writer argues about the folly of drifting from the gospel. The absolute folly 
of doing this. And he contrasts, and you can see it in the language that he uses in verses 2 and 3, the messages of the law and the gospel, and argues that though both have come from God, the gospel is greater than the law. And so to turn from the gospel to the law is absolute folly. Here were his readers who had heard the gospel, who had been taught the gospel, who had committed to the gospel, but now they're being pulled back to give themselves to Judaism, to the Old Testament law. He brings the contrast out in verses 2 and 3 in the two phrases. The message declared by angels, that's the law. And then the message declared by the Lord, that's the gospel. The message declared by angels. This may be a a new idea for us, but it is found within the Bible. The reference is, I think, to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, that it was given by angels. Now, on reading the account in Exodus chapter 20 of the giving of the law at Sinai, we often just think that it was Moses and God who was there. But wider references within Scripture make it clear that it was the angels who brought the law to Moses. Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes the occasion as he's right at the end of his life and he's looking back those 40 years to when the law was given. And he says that holy ones, the angels, were present. Psalm 68, 17, that that we will sing, describes Mount Sinai. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands at Mount Sinai, asserting the angels were there. One rabbi in the intertestamental years maintained that God gave the first commandment and the angels gave the rest. That's probably going too far. The Jewish writings, the Targum, picks up on this point and emphasizes that the angels were present and involved in giving the law. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, in his long sermon, he includes the phrase, the angels who spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. Paul in Galatians 3.19 makes this statement, the law was put in place through angels. And here the writer in verse 2 says, the message declared by angels. Angels were privileged. Involved in giving the law. The mouthpiece of God to Moses and Mount Sinai. And you see where this argument's going, don't you? The readers were inclined because of this to overrate the position of the angels and downplay the position of the suffering Jesus. But the writer goes on to delineate who brought the gospel. He says in verse 3, it was declared by the Lord. The law was brought by the angels, but the gospel was brought by the Lord. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, yes, but the fulfillment of it, the enunciation of it, 
The proclamation of the gospel was by the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, not by angels. God incarnate appeared in human form to proclaim the superior message, the supreme message of the gospel. It wasn't entrusted to the angels as the law was. And though the readers had never heard the Lord directly themselves, they had heard his direct representatives, as the verses say, especially the apostles, attested to us by those who heard. God confirmed the dignity, the superiority of this message of the gospel by the full range of wonderful works far more extensive than anything that happened at Mount Sinai. And a whole range of words are used here to describe the powerful works of God which attest the supernatural origin and supremacy of the message of the gospel. Signs indicating that they're more than power acts and they point to something else beyond them. Wonders which inspire awe in those who see them. Miracles of healing, nature and demons attest the gospel, the gifts of the Spirit referring primarily to those supernatural gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing indicate the supremacy and superiority of this message which was declared and brought by the incarnate Son of God. So why turn back to the law, the writer asks, when you have the superior message of the gospel? Why this drift? Why this neglect away from the gospel towards the law? In the UK, every year 5,000 people turn from Christianity to Islam. They turn from gospel of grace to the religion of works. And perhaps we're amazed at this and, and maybe know someone who has done this. But maybe our hearts have turned from gospel to law. Maybe the thrill of the gospel is gone. One of the elected elders said to me that he loves sitting under the sound of the gospel. Maybe you can't say that anymore. Maybe you blame the people. The older people you knew, they're not here anymore. Maybe you blame the preacher. He's not like Knox or like Robert. But maybe the reason is in yourself. You've lost interest. You've been distracted. Your friends have no love for Jesus and that has affected you. And you're drifting. From the gospel. Maybe we've turned from gospel to law and lost sight of grace, and law dominates our outlook. You doubt your personal salvation because it's all about law keeping with you, keeping the commandments, living as a Christian, doing your best. And one manifestation of that mindset is that you're critical of others. We judge others harshly. 
We've lost sight of the grace of God that has forgiven us and which we should show to our brothers and sisters. It's all about law with us. We've drifted from the gospel of grace. The format of drifting from the gospel. The folly of drifting from the gospel. And thirdly, the fearfulness of drifting from the gospel. The writer emphasizes the, the, the seriousness of doing this in, in our lives, of turning away from the Lord's message. And he points to the Old Testament and argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, well, well under the law, Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution in verse 2. The law was no empty set of rules. And numerous examples of judgment through neglect of the law are found in the Old Testament. One striking instance is in Leviticus in chapter 10. You recall reading in Leviticus in those early chapters grinding through the the detailed laws of the sacrifices, those five different sacrifices and and they're not given just once, they're given twice in Leviticus chapters 1 to 7 and then we come to chapter 10. Aaron's two sons, they neglect those laws and they offer what the Bible calls strange fire. They come before God in a way that they want, a way they please. They neglect the God-given rules and they lose their lives. This was no empty law. It was a law to be grasped, to be followed, to be submitted to. This was God's law. And the writer builds on that and says, how much greater will our danger be If we neglect the superior message spoken by the Lord who is above the angels. Shouldn't we listen to him? Shouldn't we commit to his message? Shouldn't we give ourselves completely and wholly to that gospel of grace? There's more light in the gospel. There's more responsibility then with that fuller revelation. That advanced knowledge that has come. With the incarnation of Jesus. We say to our children who were involved in the same mischief. We say to the older child. You should have known better. Your advanced years. Your greater knowledge and experience. Should have kept you from such tomfoolery. This is the argument of the writer. Those in Old Testament times who neglected The message of angels, just retribution came on them. How much greater danger will you and I be in if we let our lives just drift away from the gospel of grace? Is it possible that God disciplines a believer in a severer way than an unbeliever because they knew better? We've sinned against greater light. There must have been many lies told in the New Testament world in the first century. But Ananias and Sapphira had such knowledge, such privilege, such light. 
In the Old Testament, many people must have lost their tempers in their tents in the wilderness wanderings. But when Moses lost his temper, the man of privilege, the man of knowledge, he was debarred from the promised land. Isn't this the case with those who are not yet Christians? have heard the gospel the privilege that they have in knowing the way of salvation the gospel of grace the offer of mercy yet just to let their lives pass the years go by without embracing that gospel laying hold of that gospel bringing it into their lives by the spirit of God how much sorer will their judgment be than those who have never heard. The question we're all asking as we close our sermon this evening is how do I avoid such drifting from the gospel? And our inspired writer anticipates that question and he brings it right up front in the first verse. And his answer to avoiding drifting is this. We must pay much closer attention to what We have heard. Closer attention perhaps than what we've given to the law might be the idea. Closer attention than what we've been giving up till now. Or simply and probably most likely. Give the gospel your closest study. What good does listening to two sermons on the Sabbath day do to you? Do you ever change anything in your life as a result? Do you ever think about the sermon during the week? What about your daily devotions? Do you look forward to them? Do you do them always at the end of the day when you're tired? Are we drifting from the gospel? Are we cold in heart? Are we distracted from Jesus? Are we losing our oomph, our enthusiasm, our wonder at the gospel? Are we committing ourselves, our time, our energy, our interests to something else? What's causing us to drift? In the paragraph, the writer teases us, tantalizes us with a short phrase, such a. He'll unpack something of what he's saying in that short phrase, such a, but now he he lets it hang, lets it linger, holds it before us. This is the thing that will keep us. Such a great salvation. The magnitude of it, the power of it, the grace of it, to explore that, to plunge ourselves and grasp its riches and wonder. Such a, such a great salvation. 